Welcome to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Thanks for joining me here where I talk about sex, relationships, mental health, and dive into your questions with practical answers and real solutions. Each week, I share insights aimed at helping you build an authentic and healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and with your sexuality. It's time to get naked emotionally, mentally, and on your own time, physically. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Get Naked with Dr. Kate podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Today on the show, I'm really thrilled to have a colleague join me whose name is Christine Lozano. Christine integrates a unique blend of expertise working as a BIPOC ASEC certified sex therapist a certified sex addiction therapist, and a licensed marriage and family therapist. Christine has extensive experience supporting clients in restoring emotional and sexual intimacy, healing the pain of betrayal trauma, and rediscovering pleasure after sexual trauma. Christine specializes in the treatment of sex-related concerns and compulsive sexual behavior, and she enjoys working from a sexual health perspective. So today we're talking with Christine about Asian Americans and their cultural and mental attitudes towards relationships and sex. Welcome, Christine. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be able to be on this podcast with you. I'm really thrilled that you said yes. I know we haven't spoken in a few years, but it was. I'm just really thrilled that you agreed to come on and have this conversation with me today. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. So you're a sex therapist and I'm really curious as an Asian American yourself, how would you describe your firsthand experience of Asian Americans' cultural views of sex and relationships? Mm, Yeah. So from my own firsthand experience, and I imagine from speaking with either friends or family or clients who are Asian American, that they're there's a common thread that sometimes happens. And part of that is shame when Mm -hmm. it comes to sex and the lack of caregivers openly talking about it, or let me rephrase that openly talking about it in a way that is shame-free because they might openly talk about it, but talk about it in a shaming way. And yeah, so that, that comes up a lot. And it's, it's also interesting when people, have a better understanding of that and then know that I'm an Asian American person working as a sex therapist because there's curiosity around like, how, how did that come to be? If sometimes or oftentimes there's shame when it comes to sex in your culture. And now you, you do this as a living and talk about it so often and help people through this. So that's interesting. So how do the people in your family and your inner circles, how have they reacted to your decision to go into this field in this area of specialty? Yeah. So my parents, uh, they reacted to it by me. I I didn't tell them. (laughs) I didn't tell them for a period of time. Um, Up until this day, I'm actually not sure if my dad knows that I specialize in this. And I've been specializing in, in compulsive sexual behavior and sex addictions for 10 years now. Mm. And then added on the sex therapy piece. So to this day, I don't know if my dad knows about it. Um, and my mom, 
she, I, I kept it from both of them because I was unsure of the questions they might have, the concerns that they might have, the judgment that might come of it. So I didn't share it with them intentionally. And how it came out was that my mom at the time, this was maybe 2015. So like two years of me being into the specialty, mm -hmm. she wanted to support me and asked for some of my business cards that she wanted to ha hand out to friends, <laughs> friends or coworkers. And I said, oh, okay. And realized that my specialty is on my business cards. And that that's how the information was relayed to her. So it wasn't even directly through my own words. I was like, here are the business cards. And then she looked at them and she saw the specialty on there. And then that's she how it came out. Interesting. So what was her reaction to that? Her reaction was to ask me to go into uh, one of the bedrooms in the house to make sure that no one was around to hear the conversation and lowered her voice and said, what is this that you do? Mm. Because she had no idea. And yeah. that the specialty at that time on at least what was on that business card was the certified sex addiction therapist. Mm -hmm. So understandably there's already uh, can be a misunderstanding or misconception around what that means. But when you add the layer of it being a parent realizing that their their kid is specializing in this and mm -hmm. them wondering like what what kind of clients are you working with and are you is your safety at risk and mm -hmm. things like that um, but the even the the messaging around making sure we go into a quiet room where no one's around and then the lowering the lowering of the voice yeah yeah so much fear so much fear about even sort of speaking it into the ether and what that might mean for you and within the context of your family or even in the greater uh world mm-hmm yeah, yeah. And so, then I don't know if she ever shared it with my dad. Interesting. So what yeah. what, your, what does your dad think that you do at this point? They, they know I'm a therapist. Okay. And I think they, or from what I've shared with them before, that I specialize in addiction. Because mm -hmm. that was, I mentioned that part and then left out the sex part. I see. <laughs> yeah. So. So it's interesting, like sex carries so much stigma within your family and sort of the greater community that it's it felt easier for you to just withhold that part of your professional life um, from mm -hmm. them. What, what did you think they would say or do if they knew earlier in, in your career that you were focusing around areas related to sex and mental health? Yeah, I think my dad probably would have not talk, spoken about it much that's more of his like personality and maybe relay his concerns to my mom who then would have relayed them to me. And they, I imagine maybe would have said, if I wasn't in the specialty yet, may have asked me to do, do I want to reconsider that? Or mm -hmm. is there some other specialty that I can have or how come I want to specialize in that? Like, I, I don't think the initial response would have been, Oh, we support that. We're so interested. I think it would have been, ah, can, can we like scoot you away from something from that into something different? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So let's break that down a little bit. What are some of the cultural scripts around sexuality that create so much shame that they would potentially have tried to avert you from choosing this as your professional direction? Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it probably would there would have been their own personal shame around it. And then the cultural shame piece of it. 
Mm-hmm. And that got passed down because I, I very much so imagine it was sex was not talked about from their parents to them. And then that got relayed to, uh, to us. I mean, I have one brother of them not talking about sex with us. So then the idea of us talking about it on a regular basis in a professional work setting, it just probably would have been like, we, we don't understand what you're doing. Mm. And I think some of the the scripts around it would be, and not just in my culture, but I think for a lot of Asian American cultures is if, if Mm. you're going to have any sort of sex, you do that after you're married. And some of that has the, the religious undertones in it because a lot of, Asian Americans also are affiliated with different religions that have that that mm-hmm. um, belief of waiting until marriage, mm-hmm. and then if you, and that includes masturbation for for some people that it's essentially like don't don't express or experience something sexual in nature in that way with self and definitely not with other until you get married, but then what if someone doesn't get married, right or other things that I've come across in my work is for some people, they do wait until they get married because of the, either the, the shame around it or the cultural piece or the religious piece. And then they get married and then they're like, we don't know what we're, what we're doing. They try to have a sexual experience and they, they lack the sexual education. And they're like, we, we don't know what to do beyond making out. We don't, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Which can create a lot of extra fear for people around introducing sex into their day-to-day experiences with a partner and a lot of extra shame if they feel like they don't have the skills necessary to be the kind of lovers they want to be and, and to be with. Yeah. Yeah. The, the anxiety that can come from that. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes the, with the lack of education, not knowing if there's certain discomfort or pain Mm-hmm. The confusion around is this normal or is it because I haven't experienced my body being touched or stimulated in this way? And the the shame around it doesn't just go away once they get married. It's not like a light switch of, oh, I'm married now, so now I can be this sexual being and expand my sexual self. It's just, mm-hmm. it can feel very awkward because mm-hmm. for decades, someone has been um has been taught to not explore that part of themselves. So let's talk about the unique traits in Asian American cultures, understanding that uh, no one group is a monolith, of course. Um, But what are some of the unique traits that might stand out that kind of perpetuate uh, this experience of compartmentalization or um, uh, maybe anxiety around sex? Mm, yeah. Around sex specifically, I think there can be, well, I think this can apply to sex, but it can also apply definitely to non, non-sex related things of mm-hmm. this idea of saving face. I'm not sure if you have probably heard that phrase before, but especially that phrase or that idea comes up a lot in, in many Asian cultures mm-hmm. that if you are, if an individual is engaging in something and it it can be viewed as shameful that it's not only shame that you're bringing on to yourself it's shame that you're bringing on to your family and your culture and potentially like your ancestors that came before you so that there's this huge ripple effect around if you do that like you're affecting many more people than just yourself so i think that and then how that yeah i think that's the saving face piece comes up a lot for people 
Yeah, that's a lot of pressure, right? You're mm -hmm. responsible for the reputations of all of these people, even people who aren't alive anymore, right? And, yeah. and how does that impact things like openness or um, authenticity around uh, emotional processing or in, like even fantasies or desires? Yeah, but how it impacts that is that a lot of a lot of people end up not sharing that part of themselves because of the fear of judgment or the shame or the not knowing how people might respond or not understand that part of them. And then it, it can end up getting suppressed or repressed. And that can then manifest in many other ways of like people pleasing or trying to find a way to cope with that. And the coping might not be in a healthy way or just being a, a lack of attunement to someone's emotional life and not knowing how to be open and vulnerable and talk about hard stuff or share about concerns that they have and not wanting to rock the boat because it's just like, oh, we don't want to air our dirty laundry. We don't want people to know that we're struggling with this and or we don't even want to talk about that within our own family. Yeah. Yeah. So so in your family growing up, was that part of the the, the code, the code of conduct, right? We don't talk about things. Yeah, I think. More so with my dad, that it was un, it was unspoken. It, okay. He didn't say, don't talk about your feelings, but it, the, the modeling was that he didn't really talk about his feelings. So then as a kid, you're like, oh, okay, I guess he doesn't really do that. So it would feel kind of awkward for me to do that if I were to initiate sharing about my feelings because I didn't really see, see him do it all that much. Mm -hmm. um, so that on, on his end. For my mom, there was, she was more open of like, and I think she would probably describe herself that way. And then also sometimes it came with consequences if you were to to say something that either was hard for her to hear or, so it's like there, it, it's kind of this paradox of like, oh, be open, but then you might get in trouble for it. So mm -hmm. then it, at least in, for me, and then I've talked about this a lot with my brother, you, you learn to just hold stuff in because it's like, oh, we don't want to, the consequences that might come from this. Are big. Yeah. 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 Whether you, yeah, it, it can be, and, and not even consequences of sharing something that might be something about emotions, but mm -hmm. I, I think also a common experience that some Asian Americans might have, especially if they're first generation, because if they're assimilated and acculturated, then that, that shifts over time. Okay. But if they're first generation and their parents are born from a different country and then that the the cultural underpinnings from that still being brought to America, mm -hmm. that there is a the the ways in which a kid learns how to relate to other kids and the ways in which and I'm speaking from my own experience, mm -hmm. the ways in which other kids were it was OK for them to go out and hang with friends when it's a, a late night mm -hmm. and do these, you know, things that other kids are able to do. But then in Asian culture, it's like there can be a lot more strictness around that or the curfew can be a lot earlier and it can be hard to have a social life when your your parents are very stressed like that. Yeah. I, I hear that from a lot of the um, Asian clients that I've worked with, that there's sort of this extra layer of protection is sort of how their parents intend it to be. 
but it ends up creating for them a lot of social barriers and insecurities later in life because their parents were so overprotective that they struggled to sort of make friends and feel confident in social settings. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you affirm? Yeah, I would say sometimes it it can manifest in that way. Mm -hmm. And then other times it can manifest in a way of just lying, lying to your parents about where you're going. Mm. And it was, and I mean, that's something I definitely did. And it wasn't even lying because I'm going to go to this rager party to do a bunch of drugs and have a bunch of sex with people. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, I want to go to the mall and watch this movie. Right. But maybe she, maybe she wouldn't want me to do that with my friends and not know where we're going to go afterwards. So it was, it was for like pretty, like innocent ish stuff yeah. rather than something that she probably was afraid might happen, but it would, it was just like learning to, to not open up about things like that. And that included not opening up about my dating life. Like mm-hmm. part of the household that I grew up in is you, you date when you're, you date when you're in college at the earliest. Wow. Ideally you date when you have, when you like have your career and then you can like start making time and space if you want to have a partner so when I started dating, I also did not tell my parents that until it, they like found out about it. And then that was a whole nother thing. But that <laughs> happens for some or many, many of the either clients mm-hmm. I've worked with or just friends or family is that they hide their dating life unless they absolutely had to, for some reason, open up about it to their parents. Yeah. It's a like, huge part of like hiding a big part of yourself if you're hiding a, a partner that you have. Exactly. Or, or the desire to have a partner, right? And I, I wonder about how that need to shield that part of oneself carries then forward into adulthood, right? When you no longer have to answer to your parents in the same way you do when you're a teen. But there's this like secrecy part of your life that yeah. uh, does that go away? Or how, how do people reconcile that as they get older? Yeah. Yeah. And that brings up a great point because I can, I can speak to that from, from my own firsthand experience. Mm -hmm. So I've, part of my dating history has been some, some of them were, or still are Asian American. And -hmm. then other people I've dated are, are of different cultures. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see the difference of, because I got so used to not being as open with my parents around what my dating life looks like and things that are going well or concerns I have. But then when I've dated other men who are white and have a different culture and different relationships to their parents and being more open with their parents. And I'm like, Oh wow. I would not tell my parents that. Or when I was dating like an Asian American man, he was just like, I, sh- I sure as hell wouldn't tell my parents that. So I, mm-hmm. I experienced the difference in when I've dated different cultures of how mm-hmm. that's managed of the level of openness and how that carries on to to this day, even as I'm in my like early to mid thirties that mm-hmm. I, I am selective around like what level of detail I share about mm-hmm. my dating life. Even if there's like minimal, if any repercussions or consequences now, but I've just gotten so used to doing that for decades that I'm just like, Oh, this, I just don't share about that part. But mm-hmm. other, other partners are like, Oh, wow that my parents are like some of the first people I would tell that to. 
Yeah. What are some examples of like things that you feel like you may have, you may keep private from your family that other people from other cultures may feel more comfortable with? Because it, it is good to have some boundaries with one's yeah. parents, right? They yeah. don't know every granular detail of our relational lives or our sexual lives. In fact, that starts to feel like um, enmeshment or maybe some, yeah. some, you know, boundaries that might need to be reexamined. Um, yeah. So what's an example of something that you are, are kind of using as a, a contrasting share? Yeah. yeah, I would say one example would be of me just when I was not partnered and I'm like, oh, I think, I think I'm going to explore dating. Mm. Not even telling my parents that, not okay. telling them, oh, I'm, I went on this dating app and I'm like, I'm not going to tell them that. I will tell them once I've and essentially in an established relationship, not that I'm casually dating. Yeah. Like, I don't even know if my parents would really grasp, like, what is casual dating? You are either single or mm -hmm. you're in this, what should be a long-term relationship. How does a long-term relationship materialize without dating in, in, without kind dating. Of, in that mindset, right? <laughs> like, what's the expectation of how you get there? Yeah, yeah. The, the hanging out with the person, but the idea of, I, I didn't do this, but it's just because I'm, I don't like casually dating numerous people at once. Mm -hmm. But if, if I were interested in that, that idea I think would be like, how, how are you dating numerous people at once or hanging out with numerous people? If I you see. like one person, shouldn't you just be exploring your potential relationship with that mm -hmm. person? So I think that culturally would probably be a different piece. Yeah. 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 Okay. What do, you th what do you think you would have wanted your parents to say to you about sex or relationships? Like what information do you feel is missed in, in this kind of intergenerational code of silence that would have been really yeah. useful in your own development as a sexual being? Yeah, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about uh, numerous examples, but one of them is my mom just speaking with me openly about my menstrual cycle. Mm. because from my memory, maybe I have a terrible memory, but from my memory, she didn't openly speak to me about that. Okay. And I, and I have also heard that from other like Asian American friends and or clients. So mm -hmm. I don't know how common that is, but it's, it's part of my experience. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is not, it's not even like sexual in nature. This is just mm -hmm. like, I want to know what's happening to my body. Yeah. And I got my first period when I was nine and I got it when I was, I was traveling in the Philippines. Okay. So because my mom hadn't spoken about it, I immediately had embarrassment about it. When mm -hmm. I found out I had it, didn't tell anyone about it. Didn't tell my mom about it. I knew she had menstrual pads. So mm -hmm. I just like stole one from her luggage and used the pad because I, I knew to that, to that degree, like you should use something to catch the blood. Okay. But I use that same pad for every day for at least 10 days oh. and just the same pad. And that's part of like the shame and embarrassment of like, I'm bleeding, but she hasn't talked to me about this. I don't know what to do. I don't want to mm -hmm. talk about it with anyone. So I'm just going to try to hide this and I can't take all her pads because then she will notice that I took all her pad or notice that they're missing at least. Yeah. So then I just use one pad and that's like, that's sad to think about. Of yeah. like nine-year-old me or someone going through puberty that has that level of embarrassment about it that they they do something like that that's not sanitary and all these other things so yeah. i mean that's one thing that comes to mind that i wish she had spoken more about and i think 
maybe a year or so later, I got one of my Christmas gifts was a book that said something about like your body is changing. And that, and that was like the information. So I was like, Oh, okay, let me read through this book. And like, mm-hmm. Oh, this is a menstrual cycle or like, Oh, and there were some diagrams and stuff, mm-hmm. but I, I wish it was more direct and like, let's go to the store, look at diff- different pads that it was more normalized from, yeah. from that end, just like the menstrual cycle end. Yeah. Oh gosh. I can only imagine nine-year-old you just feeling so scared that anyone might find out and feeling like you're at fault somehow for something that's so natural and, and so expected in, in sort of one's life trajectory. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So there's that from that end. And then in terms of the, like the talk or Mm -hmm. the ongoing talk about any sort of sex, I, one thing I really would have wished was that even though if the younger version of me probably would have been really potentially really uncomfortable and like, Oh, this is awkward. Mm -hmm. But I think even before having starting to have that, the talk conversation about any sort of sex, there was already either overt or covert shaming about sex related things. Because Mm -hmm. if we would watch a show or a movie and people are making out or people maybe maybe not making out but if they were doing anything beyond making out mm-hmm. like if there's touching or clothes are off or it looks like a sex scene um, my mom would either cover my eyes for me she'd like put mm-hmm. her hand in for my eyes or she would tell tell me to do it to myself mm-hmm. so that like what messaging does a kid get from that yeah for me it was like this is not okay to to view or mm-hmm. it's not okay to uh, to be interested in or, and then even as I got older, when she stopped doing that, mm-hmm. then it just felt awkward when a sex scene would go on, come on and we're watching a show or something. I would, I felt uncomfortable because of mm-hmm. how conditioned I was for it to be awkward to watch this with a parent. Mm-hmm. So I would like get up and like use a bathroom or like get a snack or, <laughs> or just like sit there uncomfortably and then wait for the scene to pass. Uh, it would drive me bananas when my parents would shield my eyes. I, I would always want to know what's happening on the screen. It, yeah. it made me more interested in what was going on. But but over time, it sort of created this experience of like, I'm wrong because I'm curious or I'm doing something yeah. wrong. If I don't shield my face fast enough and I am contaminated by these these images on the screen, right? If I see something I'm not mm-hmm. supposed to see and I wonder if that ever translated over to you or if you ever felt like like the onus was on you to uh, not absorb what was so prevalently around mm-hmm. you. yeah yeah that's a great question I hadn't really thought about it that way at least not yet but I imagine to some degree that that was happening for me because it is a when she was doing that I don't know at the time if I'm like oh she's trying to protect me from something mm-hmm. scary happening on the TV I don't think I thought that because I knew that they were sex related scenes. Yeah. I imagine if it was, I don't know, like a car crash or something with blood or violence. And she did that and be like that. My mind would be like, Oh, she doesn't want me to see something that's scary. Mm-hmm. But because I knew it was something sexual in nature, luckily for me, I didn't associate that to, Oh, sex is something that is like violent and scary. Don't look at it. Mm-hmm. It was more so like, this is not okay to talk about, but not, I didn't translate it to like, this is scary. Yeah, interesting. So, 
when when you're thinking about kind of the impact on um, on different folks about some of these cultural ways of navigating sexuality, I wonder how frequently is this a point of conversation in therapy with Asian American clients mm -hmm. for you? Yeah. It comes up, at least in my experience, because I specialize in, in sex therapy and compulsive sex, it comes up pretty regularly. And at the same time, some of the clients I've worked, some of the Asian American clients I've worked with have worked with other therapists before me and who didn't have this specialty. Maybe they had a different specialty in which it just didn't get brought up at all. Or if it did, it was like a one passing discussion that never got touched again, which then to some degree perpetuated for the client like, oh, my therapist isn't going to go there or they seem uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm not going to share more about this mm -hmm. so that I think it luckily because of the specialty I have, it gets spoken about more. It, within, within your culture or um, different Asian American cultures, I'm really curious about how mental health uh, therapy is, is seen and how is it viewed? Yeah, I think it can oftentimes be viewed as you're weak mm. and you should be able to figure this out on your own. And how is a stranger going to help you figure this out? And it can go also relate to the saving face piece that I'd mentioned earlier that depending on, let's say a parent finds out that their Asian American kid or a grown adult is going to therapy, how it touches a saving face piece could be, oh, you're sharing that you're struggling with this thing. And if people find out, what do you think they're going to think about us? Mm. That something's wrong with our family that you have to do that? Or did I mess up that you're going to therapy? Things like that. I remember when I first let my mom know I was interested in going to therapy. And this is when I was in grad school okay. to be a therapist. She knows I was in grad school to be a therapist. And I let her know, like, oh, I'm interested in, I'm looking for a therapist. And she, her first response was, why do you need that? Mm. Oh, it felt like such a oh. threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you need that? Rather than like, oh, and like a curiosity or a, I want to support what might be happening for you. I hear that a lot. And, and in our preparation for this interview today, we talked a little bit about how um, therapy is, is looked at with so much stigma or fear that a lot of Asian American folks don't really seek out therapy. I mean, if anyone's listening, how would you encourage them to maybe move through that if they think therapy is something that would be beneficial for them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that the mental health is so important. It's so important. It's as important, if potentially not more important than physical health. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is a way to help people get in the door if they do prioritize or think that their physical health is important um, because mental health can be just as debilitating or if not more debilitating than if you had some sort of physical ailment. Yeah. So it's really trying to view it as like, this is one, one avenue and one form of addressing health. And it just happens to be like health for the mind. But I also want to be mindful that Eastern medicine does not view it that way. And sometimes yeah, that like Western medicine, there's a line in a show and the line is like Western medicine doesn't work on Eastern minds. And the idea of like therapy being a Western medicine might not be helpful for someone that has 
is is the narrative that someone might believe depending on the culture that they grew up in. So I think if someone is listening and they're like, oh, I don't know how this can be helpful, then maybe at the to to do an initial consultation and share those fears, share yeah. those fears with a therapist. And hopefully if it's a therapist that would be open and interesting and in, not interesting, open and interested mm-hmm. and compassionate and understanding that they would be able to hear that feedback and be able to talk about it in the consultation before moving forward with potentially working together. Yeah. Yeah. I hear a lot of themes from Asian American clients around an emphasis of perfection, right. And a lot of pressure to be perceived as, you know, just perfect, perfectly intelligent, perfectly achieving, perfectly successful financially and otherwise sort of perfect in their situation in the world. And I think people of different genders experience this pressure in in different ways. But I wonder if that plays a role in kind of the the pressure to get through therapy quickly and efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that touches on the, the idea of model minority, Mm -hmm. which I'm not sure if you've heard of that, that Mm -hmm. term or the idea around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes people view that as a compliment of like Asian Americans are viewed as a model minority and you want to achieve and all, all these characteristics that are viewed as these things that you want to to like strive for. And then at the same time, the amount of pressure that that can put on someone to to excel at many things and to have a really high paying job and to be able to financially provide if if it's a man and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's a, it can be a lot of pressure. It is. I think one of the things I hear a lot about is this inherent double bind, right? Because when when folks of any culture, but especially folks with such um, uh, intense cultural scripts start to make changes in their life, and those changes go against the scripts that they've been given at birth, there's this tension, this double bind, right? Am I true to myself or am I true to who I'm supposed to be, right? And I wonder, mm. like, wh- how would you maybe suggest that people start evaluating that tension for themselves so that they can make decisions that allow them to live a life they feel good about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a tough one. Yeah. And that has come up with some of the clients that I work with too. Kind of the identity, the, the confusion or an identity. How much am I doing this for my parents? How much am I doing it because I actually want to do it? But I've been doing this f- for my parents for as long, as far back as I can remember, yeah. that I really don't know. That can be someone trusting, hard, difficulty trusting their own judgment around it. Because like, oh, if my parents were not around or if my parents didn't know I was doing this, what would I want to do? Mm-hmm. And then even in answering that question, it's like, ah, oh, but still ingrained is in there are these messages and programming I learned as growing up that this is what I should want to do or this pays well or society will view me as more valuable because I do this type of work. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a really tough one. Um, something this is easier said than done, but it's just an interesting question that I, I do like to ask people when that comes up of mm-hmm. it, no one knew what you were doing which I know is not the reality of the world we live in, but if, if no one knew what you were doing, if you weren't broadcasting it to anyone, if no one asked questions about what you do for work, 
if no one knew what you were doing, like what, what do you think you would want to do? Mm-hmm. Or if the world was blind or no one knew how much money you made or any of that, no one saw the car you drive or the house you live in, that there was no indications of like fi- how financially successful that you are, what, mm-hmm. what would you want to do? Well, in, in your family, kind of growing up with a lot of expectations, um, I'm curious, did you, which route did you take? Did you kind of conform to the expectations or were you more of the rebel in your family? Mm, yeah, I would say career rise, probably more of the rebel ish. Okay. Um, then in my culture, the common careers that parents typically want their children to have Mm -hmm. is doctor, lawyer, nurse, like Mm -hmm. things that are known to pay pretty well. Mm -hmm. So in therapy, I mean, you can get paid well, but sometimes not depending on if you're working at an an agency or something. Mm -hmm. So from rebel in that way of, I didn't pursue a career that my parents viewed as like, oh, that's going to make you a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but also rebel in that, oh, you're going to pursue this this profession in which you're a therapist, which we kind of, I don't know if I would say they don't believe in it, but they, they wouldn't have thought that that's some, cause I don't even know if there's therapists in the Philippines, which is where, where my parents are from okay. or counselors. So for them to think about, I'm pursuing a career that who knows how much money I'm going to make. And this is a career that we're not really familiar with in our culture. And then, mm-hmm. Oh, you're going to specialize in sex. So it's like, <laughs> bam, bam, bam. <laughs> You were very rebellious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How about in your personal life in terms of like dating relationships and sex? Mm -hmm. Yeah. With that, I did not wait until I was in college to date. I like secretly dated in high school. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I, yeah, the chain of events happened that I got caught that I was dating someone. And then that opened the doors to start talking about it with my parents more. So I'm glad that that helped. Like that was that was a big thing that it actually opened the conversation of I I want to start, I want to date and have partners and not wait until college. So yeah. because the discovery of it happened and this whole chain of events happened, luckily that didn't turn into them finding out about it and saying, no, absolutely no dating. You cannot do this. So it didn't, I mean, I it very much so could have gone that way, mm-hmm. but I think because of the chain of events that happened, it, it ended up opening up conversation more. Mm-hmm. So I feel very fortunate about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I also know that it's not like that for everyone. Yeah. And I've definitely, some of one particular uh, former partner that comes to mind, that's Asian American. I dated him for over four years mm-hmm. and his parents did not know about that. Mm-hmm. And that's a really long time to yeah. be in a four year relationship and your parents not know about it. So it's like being able to experience it from on both ends of my own cultural stuff and then his own cultural stuff. And then if someone is in that position, his position also my own, how much that can like invalidate the experience in some ways because friends know and my parents knew, but for me to have a partner in which I, I essentially like don't exist they know that I was a friend. Yeah. But not that I was dating. How did that affect your relationship together? It had to be very secretive Mm -hmm. when it came to like his, his family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like we had to just sneaking out of the house, 
I'm sure his parents won't listen to this. So I'm not worried. <laughs> his parents were like, what, you did that? But it's like sneaking out of the house or there, it took a lot of calculation to be able to spend time together without his parents finding out that he's investing time in dating rather than him investing time in school yeah. or investing time in excelling his career mm-hmm. or things like that. So it, it ended up being secretive. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your own personal experience and some of the experiences of the clients that you've worked with. Uh, where can folks reach you if they want to work with you or if they want to learn more about some of the things that you're working on? Yeah. So probably the the quickest way to find me probably would be through social media on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the it's Meraki Counseling, and they might be able to find it in, in your show notes because there's another Meraki Counseling that has two L's, and that's yeah. not me. That's not you. Yeah. <laughs> so you're Meraki no, Counseling with one L. very close to my name. But yeah. if they find the the correct Meraki Counseling, that's me. It has my face and has my name. Okay. But the other one is very close in spelling. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, yeah. great. And do you have a website for folks who might want to work with you? I do. Yeah, yeah. That one is MeraukeeCounselingServices.com. Wonderful. We'll also include that in the show notes for everyone. Well, thank you, Christine. This was such a lovely conversation. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for having me on here and letting me share some of my experience and some experiences that might be common to other Asian Americans. So just wanting people to know that they're not alone in their experience. Yeah, I appreciate that. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I am so thrilled that you're here because when we heal, we can have better relationships, better sex and better everything. Um, So if this episode has been helpful for you, feel free to forward it to someone else who you think could benefit from listening. And if you think it was good, leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast channel. Thanks so much, everyone. I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrary. Everyone has questions and I want to answer as many as I can. So feel free to email your questions to question at getnakedpodcast.com. If you're looking for a free 30-minute consultation with me or someone on my team, visit modernintimacy.com. And don't forget to join our newsletter, Modern Intimacy, on Substack. Let's meet back here next week. A new episode drops every Tuesday. Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or Modern Intimacy. This podcast is strictly for education and entertainment purposes only. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.